on account of the cataclysmic events that happened as a result of Jesus opening the sixth of these seven seals that were binding up the scroll in the right hand of, of the Father, the scroll that had the finality of God's plan for mankind, his will and testament. John records, beginning with Revelation 6, verse 15, and so this will set the stage a little bit for what, what we'll get into this morning. But John says that the kings of the earth, in response to the loosing of the sixth seal and everything that happened, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, all of them, they hid. They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Again, not a, an abnormal reaction. Man has always been hiding from God. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Sin does that. It either brings us to a point of repentance or it drives us away. We want to stay away. They conclude this declaration for the great day of his wrath has come, adding, who is able to stand? And it's with this query, who is able to stand? Still kind of ringing out there in the ether, in this future scene. As we transition now into chapter 7, but before we get to the seventh seal, the final seal, which is in Revelation 8, John takes a break from the action. So everything has been building, it's been building. We have these six seals. We get to this moment in time. Who is able to stand? And instead of like getting to the seventh seal and wrapping it all up, we pause, we take a break. And John does this really to answer this important question. Who is able to stand? Well, let's take a break in the action. Let me answer that for a moment. Now scholars refer to Revel Revelation 7 as being what's known as, as a parenthetic chapter, whereby there is this clear intermission from the narrative in order for God to reveal to John, and then by extension you and I, what else was going on on the planet, on the earth, during the first six seal judgments. So we've gone through these judgments, it's been rapid fire, it's been quick, the pace has been exhausting, and then you get to this moment where you take a break, let me answer this question, who is able to stand, by going back into time, and filling in some details. And that's pretty good storytelling. I don't want to interrupt the narrative. I don't want to interrupt the flow. I want a good moment to do that. This presents it. So here we are, Revelation 7. Our subject matter shifts dramatically. Verse 1. So after these things, so after John has witnessed these sealed judgments, I saw four angels, and these would appear to be new angels, standing at the four corners of the earth. Kind of an odd phrase, but this was really an ancient way of, of referencing the four points of a compass. Uh, the four corners of the earth, obviously the earth doesn't have corners, but it's referencing north, south, east, and west. This is what John is seeing. And these angels were holding back, literally, the four winds of the earth. The, the word wind, it's the principal streams of air. These angels were holding back the four winds of, of the earth that the wind, John says, should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And so what, what John is describing for us here is a bit of a, of a global calm, kind of a restraining of judgment. Again, there's a pause in the action. And the reason for this is that something important is about to happen. So there's a calm. John says, I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, which is an interesting idea that there are angelic forces involved in God's judgment, also involved in, we in weather patterns. So this angel says to the four, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 100 and 44,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Verse 5. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 
12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Benjamin. 12,000 were sealed. Now, in order to round out our understanding of what exactly is going on here, like what's being described, it's important we don't speculate. We can actually skip ahead a few chapters, and we're given more information. It kind of rounds out the details, helps us put this all into context. If you'd flip just a few pages to the right, to Revelation 14, the chapter opens by John saying, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and the, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, again, a reference to these 144,000. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So, taking these two passages and, and, and connecting them together, what, what do we know, what do we learn, what, what do we see of these 144,000? First, before God's wrath was poured out on earth, 144,000, or more specifically, 12,000 virgin Hebrew men were told specifically from all of the tribes of Israel. Israel uh, went by another name, Jacob. He had 12 sons. The 12 sons of Jacob make up the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the connection here. So these are 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribe. They're men, they're virgins. And we're told that they are sealed. So they're sealed by these angels with the seal of the living God. Now, in chapter 7, we're just told it's the, uh, the seal of the living God. We don't exactly know what that is. But this is where chapter 14 gives us some more detail because it appears that this seal was a physical, visible marking of the name of God, written specifically on their foreheads. So they were sealed by these angels, the name of God written on their foreheads. So that's the first thing we know. Secondly, it would appear that more than just indicating that these men had been sealed by God, there was something about the seal itself that provided these 144,000 Hebrew men a type of supernatural protection so that they could not just survive, but thrive during this great tribulation. Like To this point, we'll see a perfect example of that idea in action with the fifth ju uh, trumpet judgment recorded in Revelation 9. Now, beyond the general destruction wrought by the wrath of God, while we know that with the fifth seal, a persecution of the tribulational saints occur, in some way, connecting the pieces, these 144,000 Hebrew men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, sealed with the name of God on their forehead, they're protected. So they're, un they're untouchable in regards to the wrath of God. They survived the tribulation. But they're also untouchable when it comes to the vengeance of the Antichrist, the persecution of the church. These 144,000 are immune. They get a pass. They got the golden ticket. Now thirdly, John tells us that this group had also been, quote, redeemed from the earth, being, what John says, the first fruits of God and of the Lamb. Because John then adds that these men follow the Lamb, so they're followers of Jesus. We know that they're Christians, like they're Christ followers. Some, at some point between the rapture of the church and the initiation of the Great Tribulation, through the signing of the false peace, the revealing of the Antichrist, these 144,000 give their life to Jesus, and then they're sealed by these angels, given an immunity through tribulational period. Fourth, we also know that these men had been selected, redeemed, and sealed in order to fulfill, as it were, an important task 
during the tribulation, during these seven years. You see, the job of these men will be to act as God's representatives on the earth during the tribulational period, which is important. Because having a representation on the earth during this, this period of, of God's wrath, it ensures that humanity always understood there was a witness testifying why these things were happening and what's going on. In fact, John describes them. He says, he says in their mouth, there was no deceit. They spoke the truth. I should add that the fact that these four angels, so the whole thing kind of is, it begins with these four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. The idea that, that these angels are also included in this process of sealing these 144,000 men, it, it implies that they are not in one central location. Like the idea is that they're spread out across the globe, the north, the south, the east, the west, that God has a representation in these men, but that representation is global. It's spread out. God's word has a tangible presence all over the earth, even in the midst of great tribulation. Now, there are some who will try to argue that what we have with these 144,000 is actually really nothing more than a symbolic depiction of the church. There are scholars that, that try to make this particular argument. And they do it, honestly, to substantiate a belief that I disagree with, that the church will have to endure half, if not all, of the Great Tribulation. And yet, aside from bailing on a literal understanding of any of this, there are significant issues if you take such a position. Like, aside from the fact that, that it will require of you like a Simone Biles-level amount of theological gymnastics to allegorize 144,000 male Jewish virgins as somehow representing the church, the larger problem with an allegorical interpretation it really centers on, on there not being any type of expositional precedence for doing so. And, and let me explain what that means. Like never once in the entirety of the Bible, not once, Old or New Testament alike, do we find the church being called Israel. Never happens. Not only that, but we never find Christians being referred to as the children of Israel. So if you're wanting to allegorize this, you've got to explain how you make that connection, because the Bible never has, which is odd. Yet alone, Christians have never been given. The church has never been called Israel. Christians have never been referred to as the children of Israel, yet alone been given very specific tribal affiliations. I mean, we read through it. It's kind of painstaking. But it's the idea. Yes, we should correctly see that these 144,000 are believers. They are followers of the Lamb, of Jesus. But the fact that they are only men, ethnically Hebrew, uniquely descendants of these 12 tribes, and redeemed and sealed for a specific purpose relevant to the Great Tribulation itself, all of that's inescapable. You know, one of the reasons that people struggle with like a literal reading of this chapter, a literal reading of the 144,000, the reason that people struggle centers on the reality, the true reality, that the Jewish people today cannot trace their lineages back to these particular tribes. That's a truth. Like following being double-crossed by the wise men during the, the birth of Jesus, Herod had a lot of the genealogies destroyed. Again, there was a king that had been born. Herod wants to make sure that that king can't, can't claim a lineage to the throne. So he had a lot of the records destroyed. And what was left got destroyed by Titus in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Like today, it's true, there is no way to trace these, you know, these lineages back to the individual tribes. Like, no one knows who is a descendant of what tribe today, with one exception, God. Like, God knows. 
I should add that it's, it's, you know, one of the interesting things about archaeology and one of the interesting things about Israel is that you give it some time and, and amazing things get discovered. Things you thought were gone, you give some time and, and things get discovered. Like, it, there is a reality that at some point maybe they do discover in a cave a, a, a potted jar, and in that jar are these ancient genealogies. You know, and so that, that, that maybe in a future time they can trace. But regardless, and one of the problems with referring to them as the lost tribes of Israel is it implies that God has somehow lost them. As if God has lost them. We might not know, but God knows. And what we can say for sure is that these tribes exist. And there's at least 12,000 men of each of these tribes. And at some point they're going to be sealed. God's calling the shot, so it doesn't matter. Nor should that be the reason we abandon a literal reading. Now concerning this list of tribes, if you study it, we're not, but if you do, <laughs> you will come to see a few interesting things. First, the tribe of Dan is missing. And instead of a reference to the tribe of Ephraim, we had this very unique you know, designation or reference to the tribe of Joseph. Uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is included in the list, but not Ephraim. And it's really odd. Like, like you very rarely will ever find uh, a reference to the tribe of Joseph. It's kind of a bizarre thing. Now, some theorize, and again, you can study it on your own. Some theorize that since Hosea 4 and Judges 18 cite these two tribes, Dan and Ephraim, as being really the, the bad actors in the family that introduced idolatry to the nation, that them being left off of this list is, is a form of judgment. That might be true. The reality, however, is that no one knows. Like No one really knows. You can read a lot of theories as to why Dan and Ephraim aren't here. Um, that shouldn't worry you, though, and here's why. Like of the 29 places in the Bible that you will find the tribes of Israel listed, so there's 29 times, you will find 20 different variations. So there isn't actually a consistent listing of the tribes of Israel. Uh, there's a lot of variations to it. So Dan and Ephraim seem to get punished here. <laughs> Don't know why, but they do. Now, before we move to the rest of the chapter, uh, there's something about the very existence of these 144,000 servants of Jesus sealed for his purposes during this insane period of human history that does demand a little consideration. You know, one of the main reasons for this particular intermission between the, the sixth seal and the seventh is to help us understand, to help us see, that even in the midst of incredible judgment and an act of God's grace, He still maintains a witness on the earth. And why? Because God still wants to see people get saved. You know, what makes this whole idea deeply fascinating is that in being, being referenced these 144,000 as the first fruits of God into the land, it would appear that these men, while possessing a unique designation, were just the beginning of an incredible harvest that would occur during the most challenging period of human history. In fact, the case can be made that the greatest harvest of souls that's ever happened on the planet the greatest revival will happen in the midst of the greatest tribulation. Verse 9. This is kind of the proof of this. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. So th this is not the 144,000. This great multitude of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Again, these are not limited to Hebrews. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So keep in mind, John, the scene he's witnessing, we've now recentered back into heaven. This great multitude 
were clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their face before the throne and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. That's the truth. No, they didn't say a woman. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We agree. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? That's interesting to me. The elder answers, but you notice what hasn't happened. John hasn't asked the question. So apparently, as John is seeing this incredible multitude, like he's not sure who they are. And there must have been at least just this visible puzzling, right? Perplexity that came across his face. He's seeing this. He's writing down what's going on. But he's like, I'm not quite sure who these people are. This is kind of a new group. And so the the elder, seeing that John is a little confused, is like, you want to know? John, you want to know who these people are? And John's like, absolutely. So we continue. So John says, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are, so he answers, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Uh, that is not a tribulation. It's not one of many tribulations. Like in, in the Greek language, this is literally the tribulation the great tribulation, the tribulation of tribulations is the idea. So these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Amazingly, and we touched on this last Sunday, this great multitude made up of every nation, tribe, peoples, and tongue, a, a, a multitude that no one could really number. This group that John sees are those who have come to faith, likely through the ministry of the 144,000. So they've come to faith during the tribulation and have eventually been either martyred, as it was documented in the fifth seal, or just died of, of the, the real calamities that are taking place on the earth. And I should add, again, and we talked about this in some detail last Sunday, so we're going to move through it quickly, but the idea of these robes, becoming white. And yes, we know white is, it speaks of righteousness and purity and holiness. But, but this word, there's an interesting play on it, right? It's white. But how was it white? It's white because it was washed in the blood of the lamb, which is kind of an oxymoron. Like, how do you get white? By washing it in blood. But there's a bigger picture at play because, oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other found. I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that purifies us. It's the blood of Jesus that washes us white. It's the blood of Jesus that removes our sin and makes us right before the throne of God. And this word white is interesting. It actually is just, it speaks more than just the color. Like there's something about this whiteness that's translucent. It's like light shining, illuminating. Again, you can do some research into it. There's an interesting play uh, back to the Garden of Eden and, and something that they lost when they, when they sinned realizing their nakedness, they needed to go and cover themselves, that there was this, this light that God had clothed them in that went off. This awareness. But here at the end, we see this white, this returning to the way that we were designed and created to be. It's an interesting word. You can look at it a little bit more on your own if you're interested. Verse 15. Therefore, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore, ask what is it therefore. So because... They've been washed in the blood. And, and no, not on account of anything that they had done to earn it, right? So how did they get these robes? Not, not because it was a merit. It was an award. No. They got because of the blood of Jesus. It was a work of Jesus that gave these people these robes. He says, therefore, they, again, these tribulational saints, are before the throne. Of God. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, or literally, God will tabernacle over them, protect them, shield them. And this is actually an, an interesting idea. You know, we understand 
as Christians, believers, that our, our purpose, like we will have a purpose, a job, a role in Jesus' kingdom. Paul would say that we will rule and reign with Christ. Like we have a job. And yet, it seems as though that if you come to faith after the rapture of the church, in this midst of tribulation, you're not going to rule and reign. In fact, you're given a very special, unique job. You don't rule and reign. You're actually servants in the temple of God, which is, I think, very cool. We're told in verse 16 that they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. And the implication is that these believers had suffered from hunger. So they, they won't hunger anymore, implying they had hungered. And they won't thirst anymore, which means that, that they, had, they had thirsted. They were thirsty. And they had been afflicted by the heat of the sun. But none of that will be in heaven. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Which is an amazing promise, isn't it? Please note of the promise, though, that that only happens in heaven and not on earth. There will be a lot of tears here. God doesn't promise to you know, cause us to be immune from tears and grief and sorrow. Jesus wept, and yet the day will come when, when God will do just this. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know, in the midst of a terrible judgment, what does the unbelieving world do? They cry out, right? There's a question. Who can stand? Who is able to stand? Well, chapter 7 provides the answer, and the answer is twofold. There's these 144,000. And they can stand in the midst of all of this for one reason. They were sealed by the living God and commissioned to be His witnesses in the world. The other group who can stand are these believers, these tribulational saints who stood up counted the cost, were willing to lay down their lives for the Savior who had already laid down His life for them. So who can stand? Well, the followers of Jesus can stand even in the midst of tribulation. Verse 1 of chapter 8. I know you're shocked. Two chapters. This is a two-chapter Bible study. I know. Verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Which gives me great pause that there likely aren't children in heaven. Yeah, this, this, I, this idea of when, when Jesus opened the seventh seal, which then results in the silence for about 30 minutes. Like the first thing you should note about just the phrase itself is it does denote the notion of chronological sequencing. So there's order to this. There is a chronology. Like there is no doubt, no question, that chapter 8 is picking up where chapter 6 left off, which leaves, again, this parenthetic, uh, this, this chapter 7, this intermission in between. Now, up until this point, with the opening of each seal, so each time Jesus opens one of these seals from the scroll, what happens? John will immediately like record, like with the first, these angels are like, come and see. Like John will always write about, uh, about he looked and he saw and he heard, all these various kinds of things. And yet, with the opening of the seventh seal, John says that he neither hears nor sees anything at all. Instead, he tells us that as Jesus opens the seventh seal, that a silence swept over heaven that lasted, and again, he says, about half an hour. So his sundial wristwatch doesn't work in heaven. So it's, it's hard for him to say with a certainty exactly the amount of time. So he, he, he's honest with us. It was about, about 30 minutes, about half an hour. Now, regarding what we've learned about heaven, and mainly the throne room of heaven, at this point in our travels through the book, 
you know, it's safe to say, I don't know if, if this has struck you at all, but what we've seen is like heaven is a noisy place. Like there's a lot of sound and noise in heaven. Like, like first you got coming from the, the throne itself, these thunderings and lightnings and voices. But then you also have the four living creatures and their constant refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? And then you have the perpetual worship of the elders. And then the, the angels will do something and the elders will worship and the elders will do something and the angels will worship. I mean, there is, I mean, there's a rock show going on in heaven. Lots of noise. Like, not only can you imagine how such a silence and such a place would have probably been deafening, but you have to even wonder, could this have been the first time since creation that such a silence had ever occurred in heaven? Had there been a reason? You see, the idea of this silence, what John is trying to articulate is he's, he's telling us, like Jesus opens this seventh seal and something really strange happens. <laughs> something odd. Something striking. There's a silence. It was unusual. You know, beyond being, you know, what you might say to be like the, the calm before the storm. You know, or, or a silence of, of awe and one maybe filled with kind of like an expectation about what's going to be unleashed, right? I think that the silence, the silence, there was something sobering and, and likely somber about such a silence. You know, all of heaven, again, we, we know what happens when this seventh seal is loosed. Like, we've read the book. We've seen the future. We've read the story. We're, f we're familiar. Heaven knows what's about to happen when Jesus looses the seal, when he opens it. Like included in this one seal will come seven trumpet judgments and seven bowl judgments. It'll get gnarly. Like God's final act for mankind is about to be finished. God's plan is about to come to its inevitable completion. Like what's been bad up until this point is about to grow much worse. The beginning of sorrows is about to manifest into the full-blown wrath of God. And while heaven is very aware of what's about to come next, earth ain't got a clue. Now, I believe that in such a scene, a scene of worship, a scene filled with the praise of God through singing, I think all of this instantly ceased for a reason. I think that there was an awareness by everyone in heaven, that this particular moment demanded silence. It demanded a moment of contemplation. In fact, you could even say that worship in this moment would have been inappropriate. Let me explain why. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, we read, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So turn, God says, turn from your evil ways. A again, to this point, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the apostle wrote, quote, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Have you ever been in the presence of someone who has just received like terrible, life-altering, earth-shattering, devastating news? Like, have you ever been with somebody when like their world immediately fall, like it falls apart right before you? Like someone whose heart is is breaking in your presence. Yeah, in those moments, you really want to say something, right? But there's nothing to be said. Like it's in those moments, a little side tip, that I, f I have found that silence is warranted. Sometimes I don't need you to tell me anything. You're just there, and, and you're sharing my pain. Silence. Silence. 
Yeah, I believe that heaven shuts up for 30 minutes for one reason. What was about to happen, God took no pleasure in at all. In fact, what was about to happen, this silence affirms the grief of a broken-hearted father who's about to do something he has kept from happening since the beginning. Verse 2, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, <laughs> this is a great example of, of, one of, those, of one of those moments where John's descriptions of heaven, the ones we've looked at, are incomplete. Like back in chapter 4, John told us about the four living creatures and the elders and a bunch of other things, but he made no mention of these seven angels he now sees standing before the throne of God. Like, not only do we have this, the use of this definite article, the angels, which means that this group of seven present a very unique classification of angelic being, but the idea, this, this phrase of them standing before God, it actually implies rank. Like, this was a special group of angels. These were the angels that stand before God. In fact, you know one of them. His name's Gabriel. In his introduction to, to Zacharias in Luke 1, verse 19, we're told that the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you glad tidings. And so there's a, a unique designation. Th these aren't just any, any angels. These are the angels. These jokers are bad to the bone. So Jesus opens the seventh seal. This is followed by silence in heaven. It occurs for about 30 minutes. Presumably, even maybe in the midst of the silence, John watches as these seven special angels are given trumpets. Once the trumpets are divvied up to this crew, John then documents what happens as they prepare to sound in sequence. Verse 3, Then another angel, so not one of the seven, having a gold censer, came and stood at the altar. Again, this would be the altar of incense. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now in this scene, we again have something happening in, in heaven that manifests in an action on earth, right? Like the offering of the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar. After doing this, this angel, he takes his censer, he fills it with coals from the altar, and he throws it to the earth. From the earthly perspective, you're probably not seeing all that, but what manifests on earth from this act? Well, there are these noises, voices, literally in the Greek, thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Like as best as we can figure, the whole idea of this is that it was kind of a warning shot across the bow of earth. This is going down. Now, approaching the trumpet judgments, it would seem that the first four target the environment. We're going to look at those very quickly. The last three specifically fall onto mankind. We'll get to that next Sunday. And if you want to trip out any of your friends... Bring them next week. Also, you should keep in mind that with the sounding of the trumpet, John then does his best to describe for us what results on earth. And he does this by providing the cause and the effect. Now, as we work our way through these really interesting things, it's helpful that you keep in mind the effect is very straightforward. The cause? <laughs> A little bit more difficult to interpret. So I'll do my best to interpret what John is seeing, but I'm going to do it without any unnecessary speculation. So verse 7, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. Now, the effect, let's start with the effect of the first trumpet. Again, we're told specifically, a third of the trees are burned up, and we're told a third of the green grass is burned up. Uh, more specifically, green grass doesn't, does reference grass, but it's probably better translated as herbage. 
It's much more foliage. It's much more than just grass. Aside from the incredible smoke, I mean, imagine that, right? I mean, just try to picture it. Burned up this big fire. Third, there's a lot of smoke. Wildfires. But you know, you you compound the smoke with the reality that 30% of our oxygen supply is now gone. So it's hard to breathe, and it's really hard to breathe. Like when you think about that and try to paint the picture, it's, it's really hard to conceptualize just how devastating this would be environmentally. Now, the cause, what causes this? Well, John sees something thrown to the earth, and he describes this something as being hail. Specifically, this word's in the plural, so it's multiple objects. And this hail is followed by fire. So there's a, this, a trailing of fire, and it's mingled or mixed with blood which likely it's just the color of the entire thing is what John is, is just trying to paint. I think the most logical explanation is that what John is seeing here is a global meteor shower of some kind. Again, you can, you can kind of see that in the picture. This meteor shower sets the world ablaze. Again, it seems to be global in nature. It's not the byproduct, by the way, of global warming. You know, in Exodus 9, we actually see the identical thing happen on a, on a, on a mini scale. We're told that the, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted on the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Uh, so again, we, we, we see this. Meteors seem to be a, a likely explanation, but then you can get into theories of like, these are scud missiles. Well, maybe, I don't know. I wouldn't there seeing it. Verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So the effect, again, the effect of the second trumpet. John says a third of the sea became blood, which is probably more likely John's way of describing the color of the sea and not that the sea is actually physically, literally blood. And it becomes blood, we're told, as a result... A third of the the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So whatever happens is is pretty massive. It's major. (laughs) Imagine just the smell of a third of the sea creatures dying. That's terrible. Not only do we have all these fires and the smoke and less oxygen, now all I can smell is dead fish, dead, rotting fish. And not only that, but you know they estimate, I'll get geeky for a moment, you know, a third of the, the living sea creatures would include a third of the plankton. Uh, you know, we get a lot of our oxygen on Earth from plankton. And so if a third of the plankton is gone, our global oxygen supply gets cut by another 20%. It's hard to breathe. Any given moment, again, you can run the numbers on your own, but they estimate that there are 50,000 cargo ships out to sea at any given moment. A third of them are destroyed. And that doesn't even take into account the military vessels, other commercial or recreational boats. Again, it's hard to even conceptualize the type of of global judgment and and wreckage that this would cause. Speaking of the cause, I I love the fact that John's like, I saw something. (laughs) And he says something. I saw something, and it was thrown into the sea. And this something, it was like, again, he's using descriptive terms. He doesn't really know what it is either. He's like, it was something, it was thrown, it was big. He says it was like a great mountain on fire. Again, to be fair, John doesn't know what he's seeing. He just knows it hits the sea. He knows what damage it does. You know, in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, I think Jesus maybe gives us a clue to this. He says that there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on the earth, distresses of nations and perplexities. Here's the here's the interesting line. Jesus says the sea and the waves will roar. 
a case can be made that John is seeing a massive asteroid hit the sea. And in turn, this asteroid not only does major damage to the, the, the ecosystem of, of the, the seas, but it creates a massive tidal wave, which would then account for the destruction of a third of all of the ships. Verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So the effect of this third trumpet is a third of the waters, the rivers, the underground springs, became, we're told, Wormwood, or were made bitter, and as a result, many men died from drinking the water. In the Greek, the word wormwood, it, it just means bitter. In fact, it can be translated as abstinence. Because men died from presumably drinking the water, we know that a third of the aquifers end up being poisoned, again, somehow. John points to the cause. He says, a great star fell from heaven. This star somehow fell onto a third of the rivers, onto the springs of the water. Like the previous trumpet, it's reasonable to see maybe another asteroid striking a section of land that causes irreversible ecological damage. Again, the idea here is not to give you the particulars of exactly what's happening, but just the general effect, like what, what, what takes place. Again, the cause is hard to pin down. The effect's clear. Verse 12, And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. The effect, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. And, and again, John says, as a result of this, a third of the day and a third of the night could not shine. You know, from the earthly perspective, because John adds this qualifier, that the effect was noticeable, whether it was daytime or nighttime. It's likely that the entire atmosphere of the earth has become blackened by a contaminant of some kind so that only a third of the normal natural light of either the, the moon or the stars or the sun could be seen regardless of the hour. Okay, that's kind of the idea. Now, as to the particulars of, what, of you know, the cause of this fourth trumpet, John just, all he says is a, is a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars were struck. That's all he says. You know, if the previous trumpets were the result of meteors or asteroids hitting the earth, you could imagine this fourth trumpet is kind of the natural result of it. In fact, we've seen instances, if, if you go back Mount St. Helens, when it erupted, like massive you know, ecological things like this, lots of dust in the sky. It can be the middle of the day, and it looks like it's, it's the middle of the night. So these things can happen. This seems to be global in nature. And it's what John is describing. Uh, fourth trumpet sounds. John records verse 13. Let's get to it. He says, I looked. I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, the one word that we have translated in the midst of heaven it literally means middle heaven. Like it spoke of the space that occupied, that was occupied by the sun and the moon. The idea of, of in the midst of heaven is that everyone could see this angel on earth. So this is something that's happening. Like John is telling us that this angel, after the fourth trumpet, is visible on earth. So everyone on earth sees this angel and his declaration could be heard by everyone. Like it's an audible warning. What's about to come next is not good. You know, for the inhabitants of earth, or, or those who've settled down, making earth their home, God here is issuing a warning. You know, linguistically, this triplicate, whoa, 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 it's the strongest emphasis that you have in the Greek language. Like God is making it clear to humanity that what is about to manifest through the remaining blasts of these three trumpets would be utterly terrifying. It's kind of as though God sends the angel and he's like, planet earth, buckle up. Because that's what's about to happen. In closing out, a section of scripture 
that documents the most alarming judgments ever poured out on earth by God since Noah's flood. I want to close by just pointing out two simple ways. Again, what's the whole point of it? The whole point of this stuff is not to necessarily know the future, although that's helpful. The whole point is to learn more about the one who holds the future, to learn more about Jesus. And and it's yes, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of wrath, this is some crazy stuff. At the same time, there is some just amazing things about God's grace, I find, even in in the midst of calamity. Eleven times in the chapter we just read, you run across the phrase, a third, right? A third, a third, a third, a third. You know, whether you're a glass half full or glass half empty type of person, our dynamic here leaves us choosing between a glass a third full versus a glass with two-thirds remaining. Like, my, I, the idea, the point I'm trying to make is that God only judging a third of the trees and the seas and the skies and the waters implies that he's actually sparing two-thirds when he didn't have to. It's just a third. You see, even in judgment, it's a truth. But God preserves more than he destroyed. Aside from this, again, if you look back to the song that was sung by those who had been martyred, Revelation 7, verse 10, we read them crying out with a loud voice. What is the song? First word blows my mind. Salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. Understand, while the purpose of this great tribulation is to judge the world of sin, God's desire, even in tribulation, is what? Salvation. He still wants to save For those who come out, they declare. Not you're the God of wrath or you're the God of judgment, but you're the God of salvation. You see, while these judgments were required for God to remain just, I mean, let's be real. How can a wicked world continue on without ever having a reckoning with its maker? But God, even in this judgment, is still actively pursuing humanity. He's finding out ways that he can reach sinful man. So much so, Jesus designates 144,000 to act as his witnesses on the earth. And before the greatest judgments unfold, he sends an angel to provide mankind ample warning. It's going to be bad. But salvation belongs to our God. Today and then. So Father Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says. In Jesus' name. Amen.